Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. And this is Mindspace. This is your host, Jeff Boucher. I'm here with Evan Kopp. How are you, Evan? Good, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, we got a good show today and we're going to jump into it. But first, it's awkward and unwelcome. But we have the sad duty of addressing the, the loss that everybody's feeling these days. Anybody that cares about modern day cinema, especially superhero movies or big blockbuster movies or Marvel movies. Chadwick Boseman has died tragically, horribly. And uh, it's really, it's really quite a loss, and you, it, it's something that we wanted to talk a little bit about. I, I, I actually got to know Chadwick a little bit. I interviewed him once on stage at the Academy of uh, Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences in L.A. at their Samuel Goldwyn Theater, which is maybe the nicest theater in America. Quite honestly, it's a, just a beautiful movie palace. And uh, they were doing a screening there for the Academy members, and the movie that we were screening that day was uh, Get On Up, the James Brown biopic that Chadwick is in. And I, I didn't see the film before I got there and I watched it and then interviewed him on stage immediately after. And I met him in the wings while the credits were rolling. And I was just blown away by the movie. I thought it was great. I thought it was really audacious and strong. And I had interviewed James Brown, which not too many people in my generation had. So I mentioned that to Chadwick before we went on stage. And he was really, really kind of uh, seized by that idea. And so we had like a really good rapport and then the interview went great and we talked after. And I just remember thinking uh, that he's gonna win an Oscar for that movie or some movie or several movies. And now very sad to say that's not gonna happen. It's just such a blow. Don't you think, Evan, I mean, for especially for like black America, for, for youth America, for, for people that love pop culture, it's just, uh, it's just really a tough one. It, it was just incredible to see somebody like him with such great acting skills and, you know, just an incredible person all around. He did a lot for uh, kids with cancer and was just really like an inspiration to a lot of people. And something that's even more inspiring to me is the amount of movies that he was still in while fighting cancer secretly. Yeah, you're right. Uh, with, the, with the grace that this guy had, we all wonder what will happen if, when we face the, you know, the big curtain uh, in life. And if we know it's going to come and there's tragedy surrounding it or it's untimely, you know, it just makes it all the darker and stranger. And we all wonder how we'll do with that moment. And uh, look at the grace that this guy carried himself with and, and the, the strength. He's a man that you would be honored if he was your dad. You'd be honored if he was your brother. You'd be honored if he was your son, if he was your neighbor, if he was your fellow countryman. And hopefully his death, maybe if there's anything positive in it, maybe it'll somehow bring an extra sense of emotion and sensitivity to what's going on in our world right now because there's so many difficult decisions. But, you know, um, it's a tough transition, Evan, but the show today, we actually have an interview that shares some similar things with the the story that we're just talking about with Chadwick's death. Flaming Lips have songs about death. You know, they uh, they take them straight on with uh, 
their great song, you know, Do You Realize? And then uh, their new song, which is Mother, Please Don't Be Sad. Uh, they have a new album coming out on September 11th called American Head. And we're joined today by uh, the lead singer, Wayne Coyne. And, and boy, Evan, I'm just pretty excited about this one. Like, uh, he's a really cool dude. Yeah, and you guys really talk on a pretty deep level and become closer because of it. You know, it's it's one of those interviews. Uh, it happens once in a while where, um, you know, something will happen and someone reveals themselves or both people reveal themselves in a way and there's kind of a deeper connection. And you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I, I've interviewed, this is probably the fifth time I've interviewed Wayne in my career, but never had the connection that I had with him during this interview, which is actually kind of like two pieces of an interview. We, we talked to him more than once because we had a little technical bump on our audio. But, you know, you have to realize, you know, Wayne is from another dimension. Yeah. And the Flaming Lips are from another dimension. So really, I mean, it's, it's kind of a miracle you can even record them. Yeah, we really did our best to try and, you know, make that connection. But as the listeners will hear, it's a, it's a little staticky because it's, like you said, in another dimension. So Called Oklahoma which yeah. is where they live. <laughs> but they're a great band. They started in the 80s, you know, they started in the Reagan era. And I saw them when I was 18 years old in college. I saw them at a bar in Gainesville, Florida. And we'll talk a little bit about that toward the end of the interview, I think. And then the great thing about Wayne, though, is in that band, they have such a, an affinity for Wizard of Oz, which is one of the things I'm sort of fascinated with by them, that they modeled a lot of their themes and their stage design and their art design and their kind of ethos on uh, that film, which is unusual to base a band on a film. But once you know that and you watch what they do, you can you can see it really quite plainly. And I think that that's pretty cool as well. So let's get to it, huh? Yeah, uh, unless there's anything else, we can start the interview. All right, thanks, man. When I first discovered your, your guys' music, uh, this album reminds me of Soft Bulletin in a way. It feels like a... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? And it's the 20th anniversary we just had of, uh, of that album, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 all that would just come up too fast sometimes for us, you know. People would, even when Soft Bolton was five years old, you know, people would say, it's five years, and we're like, what? <laughs> like yesterday, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, because in a way, you know, I, I mean, luckily for us, you know, once we did the Soft Bolton, you know, we've never really left it. You know, we, we play, you know, a good bit of it every night that we play. We play, you know, before COVID, you know, we, we, we played a lot, you know. Yeah. The, the Yoshimi Bell's Pink Robots record, you know, we would play those a lot. So it would never feel like, oh, we've got to go back in time. And, and when I, and when we did the softball, then I'm, I'm already in my 40s, you know. So it's, it's not like I was in my uh, teenager, you know. So, right. you know, once you're in your 40s, to be 50 or 60, it's just, it's just not that big of a difference. Sure. But I think, you know, there is this, this, the, the dilemma that we always have, you know, is like, if we're going to sing about these things, sing about our mothers being dead or our brothers committing suicide or the, our brothers dying of drug overdoses, you know, these real sensitive, deep things, you know, for us, it is, that's where the gentleness is, you know, you can really evoke something really beautiful and that starts to replace the, the horrible pain, even for yourself. You know, I think that's what a songwriter is trying to do, you know, is to take something that you don't like to think about in depth because it's it's disturbing and it's painful for you. But you can do it enough to get it into a song. And then the song is kind of a, its own experience that can be beautiful and uplifting and positive and all that. And 
Uh, and and I would say, I don't think Steve and I want to do it all the time. You know, I think we would probably make more consistently good <laughs> records if we just made one every five or six years instead of five a year sometimes, you know. <laughs> but I think even like you said about the Beatles, you know, it's like we are always fascinated by what you can discover and little things that you're like, oh, wow, we have never done that, you know, and any time that we feel like what we're doing is important, you know, that just blows it. To us, it has to just be, an, it's just got to be another song and make it as make it as cool as you can and don't worry about what you're saying and what you're doing. Because anytime you elevate it, suddenly it's you're like, oh, well, damn, you know, if it's going to be that, I, you know, and we're not any good at that, you know. Right. We do, you know, I'm listening to what Stephen is doing and Stephen's listening to what I'm doing. And then Dave Fridman is kind of listening to what, what we're both doing. And so, sure. you know, I think we have a little bit of a, a safeguard of like, I'm going to say this, I'm going to do this. Now, if it goes too far, you know, you got to, you got to try to pull me back. Or if it doesn't go far enough, you got to let me know. Cause I can't, you know, you sort of sit there. Like, I don't really know. It's like, it's like we're hypnotized or we're sleepwalking or something, you know, yeah. I think in that way, you know, you feel a lot of comfort and a lot of love and a lot of, you know, that you're being held there and you can say whatever you have to say. And the music will make you, it allows you to say it and all that, you know, yeah. and, you know, I always say, you know, once we make it, we can always reject it. You know, if, it, if you feel like it's too personal or too weird or whatever, you know, you can always make it and then just not use it, you know, sure. That's always a choice, you know? So, but yeah, I, I think, you know, there's probably a time when we didn't like say that we liked prog rock and then we would go, what do you mean? We don't like prog rock. We love prog rock. And then there would be a time when we'd say we don't like classic rock. And then we'd go, no, we, we love classic rock. So, you know, I think we try to, you know, I, I mean, to this, for me, this record has like a, there's definitely a, a modern classic rock vibe about it. For sure. It unfolds with music that it almost sort of feels like you've heard it before, only it's a new Flaming Lips song, you know. And that's, to me, that's a, that's a magical moment, you know, when we've honed in on something that everybody kind of, you know, knows what it is, but it's, but yet it's new. Um, you know, that's, yeah. we just say that's a motherfucker because, you know, <laughs> it's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the power of motif in a way. Like, you know, if you, cause if you, if you kind of connect with that, whatever that is, whatever that texture or, or, uh, you know, sensibility is, and you guys are all on a page and then the audience kind of recognizes that or feels it and, uh, it, it gets to, you know, uh, that extra, you know, kind yeah. of uh, meaning that you're talking about. It, to me, it's it's sort of, it's like storytelling music, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, whenever you sit down with someone, they start to tell you a story, there's always a little bit of dread. You're like, oh, geez, what go? Or someone starts telling you about a dream and you're like, this is going to be like an hour long right. that you can follow. And I, I don't like those, you know. I love your stories, but, you know, you want it to be paced in a way where, you know, I, I always interrupt people at the beginning. It's like, is this like an hour long? Or is this like, a bit? <laughs> you know, at least on Netflix or something, you can look ahead and say, okay, this is 60 minutes. I, I can I get a countdown to... during the story? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, do I have to pay attention to every word? And I think that's what we're doing when you hear the beginning of the song start to unfold. You know, it's saying, it's this type of song. It's this what we're going to be in. It's not an endless, mysterious zone. And 
Wayne's going to start to sing, and you're going to know, okay, I know what the length of this is. I know the vibe of this. And that's kind of what we're trying to do a little bit with those sounds, those textures, and that pacing, and those type of chords and all that is just to let you know, you know, this is going to go off the rails. If you wanted to, maybe you're listening to the wrong Flaming Lips record, but this one, you know, is, is going to tell these little stories. I love I love that the guy that did a twenty four hour song <laughs> doesn't have the patience for somebody else's story. I think that's great. Well, I mean, but <laughs> I, and I think those things do. I, I think we would be frustrated, bitter weirdos, you know, if <laughs> do these things and know ourselves, you know. I mean, we have a, a recording that we call the six hour song. That's it's out there, but it's, it's difficult to find, you know. That's right. But I but I really think. For me, I really think it's Stephen's masterpiece. And we stumbled upon this piece of music that the very first time that he recorded it, I think it lasted for about 27 minutes. And I remember him playing it for me, and he didn't say it was going to be 27 minutes. He said, a little bit long, let's see what happens, you know. And we got done listening to it, and I thought maybe this is like eight, eight or nine minutes long. I said, well, that's a little bit long. I liked it. And he said, no, that's that's almost a half hour. You know, and I'm like, wow. that's amazing. You know, and that is kind of the... You know, there is some music. I, I think some of uh, John Coltrane's music is like that. You know, it's yeah. it's just it's going, it's moving along enough that you can follow it, but it's also gentle enough that you don't get so wore out. You know, it's not aggressive. You know, it's kind of and and that's a special sort of spot. You know, and so I sort of put the challenge to Stephen. It's like let's let's see if, how much we can do of that. And we ended up doing six hours, so we called it the six hour song. And I. I really do. I kind of, I listen to it all the time, and what I like about it is it's you know it's a low, low fatigue background that's kind of constantly changing. And you know, for me, I mean, I don't like albums anymore because they're too short. I don't want to get up and change just you know the record after four songs. You know, right. so in my defense of the twenty four hour song, that's what I say. <laughs> well, there's no defense necessary, right? <laughs> none necessary. And you know, when you're you were talking about Coltrane, that you know, for me, like, um, I write, uh, obviously, it, uh, I write a lot, but I, I can't really listen to music when I'm doing it, especially yeah. music with words. You me, know? me neither. I, I yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there's, the exception is, uh, I can listen to So What by Miles Davis nonstop for 48 hours while I'm writing, and it has enough of a pattern yeah. that I intuitively what? feel that it gives me energy, but that pattern is so obscure and elusive to me that I don't, hum along or fully get purchased by it like i it it remains yeah. it's like a sunset to me it's like i, I can't quite get it wow but, that's a great description i mean but and you know and people would say well that, well it's not very engaging i'm like no it's perfectly engaging for certain things i mean yeah yeah that and that's you know again that's trying to understand like what's you know when we're when we're telling these stories on on the record where it's you know, talking about your your brother taking acid and how this made you freak out, and the whole thing is utterly sad. Yeah, you know that type of drama. You know, you don't want to do it for too long. You know, that it's it's heightened, and you don't want that. You don't want that going too long, too too aggressive, or whatever. And we do that all the time. You know, we go too far all the time. We're, we 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 are we're, the, we're we'd be the first ones to say we thought that could be longer, and we were wrong, or that could be louder. Or we were wrong. You know, <laughs> you know, and, and I sort of feel like once you once you've kind of got the listener and you're you're kind of going to unload some emotional stuff on them, 
you know, they want to know you're telling the truth too. They don't want this to be, oh, it's just going, it's going to be fantasy, you know. And right. these types of sounds that we would use, we wouldn't always know what to do, you know, but we'd know what not to do by doing it and saying, I don't think that's working, you know. And so that's that's a lot of it too, you know. It's sort of you're you're honing in on, you know, what what really is telling the story and. Um, and, and, and that's difficult, but it's also, it's, it's, it's exhilarating, you know, to know that, man, I think that I really got what you were saying there. Yeah. yeah. Did you see, this is kind of random. There was an interview Anderson Cooper did with, um, Stephen Colbert. Yeah. Um, a, a few days ago. Did you happen to see it? Well, I, I've seen one that he did a long time ago. Maybe, um, I think it's, well, maybe it was older than I thought, but he was talking about that, uh, Stephen Colbert was saying that he's come to appreciate the worst things that's ever happened, the worst things that ever happened. Yeah. Must be the same interview. It must have been older than I thought. When his when his father died, his father died in a plane crash. Uh, two of his older brothers. When Stephen Colbert was just ten, right. and I think when uh, Anderson Cooper's mother died a couple of years ago now. Yeah, a couple of years yeah, yeah. ago. Um, they sort of got together and talked about that. But it's true, and I, I mean, I've I've read things about Stephen Colbert. I'm lucky I've been around him. You know, we were able to do his show, you know, three or four times already, and he's just amazing person amazing human and you can see his interaction with other people so it just makes you be like what's what's he have to say and once i knew about his story i was like i totally totally know why he can be the way he is you know he's he's a true believer you know he's not when he says the worst thing that ever happened to him is the best thing uh, to me it's like uh, you know being robbed at that long john silvers when i was 17 or whatever you know i think it really did when I hear Stephen Colbert talk about his father dying, you know, he says it opened up that anything could happen. Any the chaos of the world, the horrible things of the world, they're, they're, they can happen to you anytime. Right. And I felt that way. I felt that way after the being robbed, you know, and yeah. thought I'm going to die. I mean, I still think that. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in my house, and I still think someone could just come in the backyard and kill uh, kill us, you know? Sure. I mean, and not a, not that I actually think it will, cause, but I've put up a lot of <laughs> safeguards, so it won't, you know? But it's, but, you know, I think once that happens to you, you know, you, if you're lucky, you never go back to being unaware of that, you know? But I think in that, you know, it drops a lot of insecurity about, you feeling like an idiot or feeling embarrassed or feeling like you're not good enough or you're feeling like, uh, you know, you can waste time or whatever. Cause I mean, for me, I think that's, that's the main thing it did for me is like, I'm just not going to waste any time and I'm not going to worry about my stupid insecurities cause I can get over them and I can keep, I can just do it instead of, you know, and that, and that's a, that, you're 17. I mean, I don't know about everybody, but for me, that was a big deal, you know, it is, yeah. It allowed me, I think, to, you know, like in my family, my dad is, you know, he was he was the dad. He was the he was badass. He wasn't very nice all the time, but he was very intense, honest, hardworking dude, you know. And he made it so that all of us brothers, you know, would work with him. I don't, I don't think he verbalized it, but it was like you're going to come work for me, and we're going to, you know, this is what we're going to do. This is how you're, you're going to make money and make a living, or whatever. And I didn't really want to. I mean, I loved working with my brothers and my dad, and I, I loved that. But I didn't really just want to do that. You know, I wanted to do art and music and all that, you know. And they knew that. They, they knew that. But I didn't really know if I could not do what they were doing 
and live with myself. You know, that's the dumb insecurity that I think this being robbed opened up a part of me said, they're not going to care. They're going to want to do music. Are you kidding? You know, and previous to that, part of me would just feel like I've let them down or I don't understand them or I'm not one of them, you know. After that, I think it just, I was a little bit of a superhero for a while in that I could sort of just appear to have a confidence even though I had no idea what what I was doing. Yeah, you were propelled by it. It propelled you. So people people respond to that. They see somebody in motion or somebody that's uh, seeking things out, initiative and stuff, and and we're naturally fascinated and drawn to it. It, um, Do you think part of that was uh, the, the the way that that event changed you. I my my sister was murdered when I was in my uh, when I was twenty three, and it changed me. You know, it's um, and I've never been able to really write about it. But the one of the things that I what happened? Sure, it was a street robbery um, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, she was uh, she was shot by a guy that um, had just stolen a shotgun. He was a, a eighteen year old kid. Um, and he had stolen this from a, uh, a guy's house and, uh, my sister was sitting in a car in a parking lot after work. She was talking to her boss. Um, they worked at a jewelry store and it, it closed. Uh, and it was, uh, after 11 o'clock, I think. And, um, this uh, guy came up to, uh, carjack the car. And as he approached the car, it's not clear what happened, but the gun, uh, as he got to the window, either the gun hit the window or he tripped or it's, it's not really clear, but the gun went off and, and uh, my sister was killed uh, without ever seeing him or even understanding what was happening. And, um, and it was a, a, a big deal thing. You know, I had to go and identify the body and go to the trial and, and uh, uh, she interviewed. So there, same, same, you, you live the same place she did. Uh, no, I was in, I was here in Southern California. I'd only been out here three months, but I was working at the LA Times and covering gangs and crime. Oh, um, oh my! And so it left here to go back there, and um, you know, and, and we were we were we hadn't been close as children because we were raised in uh, different houses. Uh, and then she was older; she was thirty one. I was twenty three at the time, and uh, of her death. And but we had become very close when I was in college, and we rediscovered each other, and, and we were like best pals, and we uh, were both tall and blue eyes, and people. Uh, she used to tell people we were twins, and I was like, "No, you're much older. Why do you do that?" Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And we watched football together, and, and she called me sports fan, and it was really great. And uh, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, when you were talking about how after the robbery, you were able to perceive the things that you wanted were worthy, and that everybody would want you to pursue the things that were worthy. I had something similar. Like I, I. Um, after her death, like I got married real quick and, and I started doing all this other stuff. I started working on a book that came out and uh, I was propelled by it as well. But I think part of it was I didn't know, I no longer saw myself as being subordinate to somebody else's story. I knew that my story, I, I had to do what I was going to do because I, I'm not, you weren't about what your brothers were doing because you're just, um, a, you're not part of, um, a, a, you know, a smaller yeah. part of that. Story. Yeah, your, your story is just as valid as anybody's, so you have to pursue it and, and do what you're going to do. Well, for me at the time, way. you know, yours being, you know, you could hardly go to work the next day and not everybody has to know it. You know, I mean, your sort of situation would sort of be like, you know, almost everybody you ran into would, 
would kind of, you know, would know about it. Yeah. Whereas with me, you know, it nothing happened. I guess that's the, you know, in the end, I didn't die. So there's no, and at the time it was happening, I really thought in a way, maybe everybody has this happened to them. And it was right. just another moment, you know, it was a moment that happened to me, but I thought the more I, if I mentioned it, people would be like, oh yeah, that happened to me 10 times or whatever, you know. But as time went on, you know, I realized, well, it didn't really happen to very many people that I know. They don't have this type of, I'm going to die experience and then sure. live from it. Or even the thing that you're talking about. Because, you know, once you get to be older, none of that has the same impact. You know, right. you're young, there is just some shattering of a of an invisible wall that you didn't know was there. And that wall can't come back. And you, I, in a way, maybe you don't want it to, but it shatters, you know. And and I do sometimes think that there's a there's an unspoken code out there amongst us that, you know, when we hear someone say something from a certain way, you go, I, I know, I know what happened to you. I know something, you know, I know this little secret, you know. Yeah. The things that we sang about even on the soft bulletin, you know, Stephen and I, even even Dave Frickman, you know, we weren't really singing specifically about anything, except we were singing about this, you know, this feeling and this the going to the other side of something that we didn't quite know what it was, you know. Yeah. I still run into people that will kind of, you know, like, you guys, I know what you're talking about. I can't actually say what it is, but you can when the music's going. When the music's going, I know exactly what it is. And really, you know, that is a that's a sacred realm that music has. And I and I really do feel like that when the flaming lips are at their best, we're channeling that thing that you're talking about. Yeah. We're not, you know, we're, we're not trying to be cool. We're not trying to be rock stars. I mean, that's when I say, you know, to do it without ego is our greatest achievement because we're just we're just the messenger, you know. Though it happened to us, that doesn't matter, you know. It's, it's that we want the message to be so true and so pure that even if we look stupid, we are going to deliver it. Even if we're embarrassed, we must deliver it, you know. Even if it ruins our career, not that we would care, you know, that we would still that we would still have to do it, you know. That just without any of that ego attached to it, and I think that's our. And we don't. Not all of our music is that. You know, I don't. I don't think we'd we'd like, you know, to have to do that all the time. And I think a lot of the experimenting and all the having fun and all that it it really does let us hone in on what. But this song should sound like this. This song could sound like that. You know, but when that happens, I mean, it really is. It's that that really is the the sacred thing that music does. You know, it it exists like you talked about with the, with the with the over the rainbow it's not music and a singer and words they're so there's so one thing of they're communicating this thing and it's it's just uncanny yeah. and in a way you know you want the song to end so you can just go back and to normal life <laughs> <You know? laughs> i mean yeah that, to that's me interesting. that's the, the thing that music does it, it ramps up those emotions even worse than they are in real life you know i mean when i hear songs that remind me of my mother and stuff like that i'm sadder when i hear the songs than i was in real life you know because it's like it's happening in 20 seconds as opposed well, to be a day or a week you know but i can recover quickly you know but i'm it's like it, it's just coming at you you know but you know i think that's what you want to do is you want to feel that you know you don't want to you know with your sister or something like that you, you don't want to say i can't think about that that's too but that's too horrible you know you have to 
make it in some way that you can say, this is part of me now, too. I'm not going to deny it. And then as you go, I mean, that's what I think what Stephen Colbert is saying. You know, it's like, it's the greatest thing that happened to me because it's, it let me know I, I could survive it. It let me know I could, I could still be positive. I could still learn. I could still, you know, do things. It was it. it didn't kill me with it, you know? And so, yeah, but I mean, that I, I've had a couple of phone calls where the person on the other line was going to tell me someone was dead. Yeah. A couple, you know, but this phone call, did you get that phone call? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's about three in the morning. A phone and you, rang and, and I, you know, you pick it up and it was my mom on the phone and I, I immediately had, I had a series of things happen in my mind. I, I just knew for a fact that it was going to be the person that she was calling about my great aunt, the woman that actually raised me, uh, who, because uh, she was an advanced age, and I, I so I had all the preparation that that's what she was about to say, you know, uh, that Ginny's gone. And then when she said my sister, I literally fell down. I literally, I, 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 wow. I, I literally fell down uh, backwards. I like went reeling across the room. Um, yeah, you know, because I just wasn't prepared for it. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting what you say. You know, what thing Colbert said is that. Not only does he appreciate those things that happen, but he actually not only is he reconciled with them, but he, he appreciates them and, and can and, and and holds on to them because they're unique to his story. But also, he says, um, and I thought this was interesting, is that the thing that unites humanity is suffering, and that if we suffer, the individual and independent specific suffering that we have will help us connect to people and will help us understand others and and will create a, a, a level of communication when they hear us talk about our pain or we hear them speak of their pain or their experiences or even their, their, their lot in life that we will more fully and, and completely connect to them and that, that the, the treasure um, is, is in that connection, uh, which is sort of fascinating. And I know, I know after my sister's death, it, it certainly emboldened me. Like there was things I had to do like, I had an assignment to go to San Quentin and cover an execution, and I was really, really stressed about going in and sitting in a room and watching somebody get killed. You know, like it's it's a really not a particularly natural circumstance. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the only way I could go and do that is I said, to, you know, I, I almost like sat down and just like, you've done harder than that. You've walked into a place and you've identified your sister's body. You'll never in the rest of your life ever be scared to walk into a room because there's nothing in that room that's waiting for you that's worse than that. Wow. Wow. And yeah. I could walk into any room after that and I would sit and I would almost hypnotize myself like this is not going to make me just like I'm interviewing Clint Eastwood or I'm interviewing George, um, you know, um, yeah. wow. you know, um, yep. Dick Cheney. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you get nervous right before you do it and I'm like, no, this is nothing. You know, I, I already did that. When you, this is when, nothing. When you had to go into the room to see your sister, did you did you hesitate and say, I don't know if I can, what I'll be like after this happens? Uh, I, I, I sort of, you know how you get a running start before you do a jump, like if you're going to do a long jump. Uh, I did a running start that started about eight blocks away. <laughs> like I, I, I got to that door, I was at a full tilt because I was afraid that I'd never open the door if I didn't. So I, I'm speaking yeah. figuratively, but like, yeah. you know, like I was, uh, Bring I, it on, I'm talking very fast. Yeah. You know, like, just yeah. get, get, get I, this I, done. I Bring it on, yeah. motherfuckers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Like, I don't... I'm scared, but if I... Yeah. 
Wow. Was it, did it devastate you like you thought, or was it something different? Uh, it was sort of, uh... I mean, I always find that what you imagined it can really destroy you more than what's what's real. For sure. That's why Jaws works. Like, the, the shark you don't see is a hell of a lot scarier than the, the, the model once they just show you. <laughs> Yeah, no, the unknown and, and the, uh, the ability of our, our subconscious to fill up that void with everything that's bad instead of one thing that's bad. Oh. You know, the unknown is always worse, I think. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, she didn't look like her, uh, and it didn't last long. And the, the person that uh, helped me was really nice. And, uh, you know, so it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. You know, and if, if I hadn't gone that day to do it, if I let somebody else do it, in my mind, it would have been... Well, it wasn't, and it was infinitely yeah. worse. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I had to tell my father he was going to die of cancer. And I, and I don't know why it, it came down to me. I knew by the time I, it was going to be me that I was the one that had to do it, you know. Yeah. And he didn't really know what state he was in. And I think he kind of thought, well, you know, maybe this is going to be all right. And I had to just tell him, like, this, I don't, this isn't, you're not going to live through this, you know. And... And I, I remember that, but I, but I also thought if someone else had done it, um, I, I I would still be wondering about that. But I was there, you know. I know I know exactly what happened. Did, but but when you said the person that helped you was really nice, see that's that's the part of it you can't put into your fantasy that's going to have an effect on you. That's the part of the mind because you get there and things are real and there are other people involved and it and it is a real situation and. All the all the things that you don't think matter about being kind and being patient and being aware, you, you become aware of that, and that, so sure. I'm always aware of that now. You know, I'm I've never, you know, if someone is talking about something like that, I, I never just, you know, I never skip over it because it's like it's those things matter when you're standing with someone and they're they're having to deal with some un, unfixable, fucked up, bad thing. Right. Kindness, patience, listening. All that shit matters, you know. It it, really it, it it makes it a little bit more, yeah. You know, this this is bad, but this is good. This is horrible, but this is pleasant. You know, it's just yeah. another another sensation. Yeah. yeah. So without I, that, it yeah. becomes an atrocity. Without that, you know, it's like if the person you're dealing with isn't human or connected in a way, then it, it can uh, it turns the, the pain into something even worse. You know, cause, uh, uh, yeah, know, adds resentment to it or whatever. Yeah, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it does, and you want, and you don't want it to, but yeah, all those things are so you're so opened up to things. But I think it's funny that we notice those things. I mean, I noticed that you know when I would in these in these times when you're dealing with people that are, are dying and it's bad or whatever. There is often people that are understanding. Okay. You know, they're with you, and you know that part of it. I would have never. I don't think I would have been aware of it. You know, if I wasn't there myself, I'd just be like, yeah, whatever. People say nice things, don't they? It's like, it's not like that. You know? Yeah, yeah, it certainly does. That's fantastic. So for you guys, um, you know, it seemed to me that I was thinking about you guys at Coachella with your bubble. <laughs> you know, you were doing social distancing before anybody, dude. Like, you were you were all over this. Yeah, because we hated the audience. I mean, I wanted to be touch them. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and this is another thing that, People can say that, and then I can either play along with it, like isn't right. this, or I could say no, I'm not doing that, and I play absolutely along with it because I think it's it's absurd, you know. Sure. But in my defense, you know, I would say in the beginning, none of us 
would I do, would not have thought this was going to last this long. I thought in the beginning of the month, and it's going to be a crazy month. Nothing ever has happened like this. But then surely it's going to go back to normal. And you know, I, I never considered it. And then two months, you're like, yeah, yeah it'll go back to normal. Now, I really don't know. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know if there should just start to be another way that we can work towards. Because if this happens, if it gets worse in the winter, which yeah. it might, we're going to regret that we did anything, you know, anything that trying to go back to normal. But we're also going to regret if it gets worse in the winter that we haven't tried to do something new. You know, so I'm always, you know, part of me is like, I think we could do these concerts where we're in space bubbles. Uh, but I don't know if we, if I should, because I'm sort of saying this is going to go on for the next five years. That's why I'm getting ready. Or should I just be like, no, this could never happen. And I'm just going to sit here like everybody else. But I can't, you know, part of me is like, well, I think it could be absurd. It could be fun. It could be ridiculous. And I'm not a predictor of anything that's real in that way. I'd just be like, for me, it would still be on those, those terms, but it would be absolutely safe. And it would, it would make sure that people don't uh, get drunk and, you know, yell in each other's faces at the end of the show or whatever. So, yeah, you know, as all that, as this goes on and on, you know, I don't feel as embarrassed about coming up with ideas of how the Flaming Lips, I don't know if anybody else could play a show like that, but I know the Flaming Lips could, you know. For sure. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I interviewed you once and you were in the bubble for the entire interview. So it's, <laughs> it's, it was right before they rolled you out. Um, but I thought it was great. It's such a good visual and, and, uh, you guys always have a sense of theatrical to it. You know? I guess I'm always, no matter what we do, if it you know if it ends up being like, man, that's really great. I always think, why, why isn't, doesn't everybody do it? I always think I'm going to do it, and then everybody's going to be like, yeah, yeah, twenty dudes have already done that, dude. And I'd be like, well, I didn't know, so sorry, you know. Right. Face bubble would be one of those where I just thought, well, once I do it, isn't everybody going to start to do it? And other people have have done it. I mean, I actually joke with Diplo still about it, you know. We did a show in South America, and he asked me about it. Like, how'd you get that? And I was like, well, not that easy to get. You know, I had to get it from an Italian company. And back then, they were about $3,000 a piece, you know. Yeah. Next show, I saw him. You know, he had a space bubble. He had lasers, and he used confetti, you know. And I was like, there you go, man. You know, <laughs> I, I don't care. I think it's, I think it's funny. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, friends with him anyway. But it's like, it is. It's just an absurd idea. It's, it's like, and it is so... I mean, to see the audience get so excited or whatever, you know, that alone is worth all the, you know, whatever the gimmick or the embarrassment would be about doing it. And maybe it doesn't work for everybody. I mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, I just think I'm just a normal dork and I'm just getting in the space bubble. But, you know, people would say, well, when the Flaming Nips do it, you know, it's it's different because your music's different and all that. And I, I say, well, okay, may, maybe that's true. But I, I am not, I'm not privy to that being part of the reason I would do it, you know. Yeah, I agree with you too. Like, I, I, I would think that everybody would do it, but I also thought that uh, everybody would have a Tupac hologram with them everywhere now. Yeah. <laughs> the dilemma with that is like, yeah, you know, it doesn't. It, it I mean, doesn't, everywhere, like it, you know, walking around on a in a picture. You know, you're saying that's a that's a hologram, but it really just looks like a a, a dully lit performer. I mean, I think that's the that's the one thing about getting in the space bubble going into the audience, you know, it's like, I'm coming to you motherfuckers and no one right. else there is, you know? And so that part of it really appealed to me because I, mean, I don't give a fuck, you know? I mean, and, and back then, uh, you know, especially at like a Coachella, you know, if you don't get permission to do stuff, you know, they just, 
they cut you down, you know, they, sure. they don't let you do stuff, you know. Yeah. Sorry, it's time for Weezer. <laughs> well, <laughs> Move along. So I did it at the very beginning of the set because I thought, well, you know, I don't want someone to catch wind that we're going to do this. And so I was like, fuck it. I just did it. And 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 now, I mean, this I don't know if they felt this way now, but now it's celebrated as one oh, of the yeah. original things that happened at Coachella. At the time, they were they were they were a little bit mad, but I but remember, yeah, it all worked out, and you know, no one broke their neck or anything. I think they were, you know, they were relieved or whatever. But yeah, but I would never have thought, you know, that this all could lead to this. You know, that it that it's some some sort of symbol of this. You know, yeah. Uh, it's just it's just insane but i but i love it in a way i mean i love that it's like you're right this is this is something i'm already i'm already part of you know yeah and i've and i've often said you know i'm when i'm in the space bubble i would say you know i'm coming from the future you know and i'm coming from outer space and i'm landing on you i'm not rolling on top of you i'm coming from the future and landing on you and it goes back to the wizard of oz you know the, yeah. the wicked witch of the west or whatever the nice witch comes down in a bubble and she just sort of floats so it's still that's what it was it wasn't you know it wasn't any any of this social distancing it was just like to, sure. to arrive in that gentle little you know bubble that little yeah. little yeah yeah and, and to crowd surf good, without the, danger the, also the bad you know the bad witch doesn't you know the good witch does she comes down that bubble you know? yeah glinda yeah yeah she kind of uh, kind of hovers and floats down um yeah, I mean, I always thought, assumed it was just, it was like the crowd surfing, but safer and, and more visually interesting, you know, I thought that's exactly. what it It's just our way of, yeah, kind of kind of doing that, yeah. And I mean, for me in the beginning, you know, I would I would actually try to walk on top of them, you know, which is, it's really difficult, it's almost impossible, but I would get, um, I'd get up there for, you know, a, a second or two, and you'd see, you know, 50 photos of that exact moment the next day, people probably yeah. take, you know, 100 pictures, and then there's one, so... Yeah, a lot of it very contrived, very much a moment, very much a gimmick, but also, yeah, what a, what a what a what a fun thing to be able to figure out and to sort of do and for people to expect it. Yeah, I think you know, as you guys, when you get back on the road, one of the things you should consider, and, and this is a gift, this is just from me to you, like you know, you just have this, you know. But if you did water balloons full of Purell and just start winging them at people in the audience, I think you're kind of technically doing them a favor. Well, no, see, we we know the golden rule. <laughs> All performers is never throw anything at the audience that you don't want them to throw back at you. <laughs> you know, if you if you throw money at them, you know they'll throw it really hard right back at you. And you're a sort of sitting target, you know. So yeah, we our balloons that we use, they're you know they're really quite big, and if yeah. they hit you in the face, they're not like uh, even a beach ball. You know, a beach ball, even though it's light, you know, it still has them. Uh, interruptive quality, you know, towards these balloons that we use, you know, we blow them up to where they almost pop no matter what they, what they touch. So that's so that we can keep playing and it's not going to hit us in the face and knock over microphones and all that. So, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all calculated. I mean, it's all calculated because we've done it wrongly and thought, well, we have to improve that, you know. Yeah. Well, fantastic, man. Well, it's, um, what a great, you know, and I'm glad you said those things. I mean, that really is. That is such a luxury to be able to hear real, real stories from real people that the real things, you know what I mean? It really is. And that's man, man. Well, um, well, that's cool. I'm, I'm glad I got to talk to you. Yeah. It was really good talking to you, Wayne. And, and, uh, and thank you again for all the great music through the years. And, and the music is like your, your performances, you know, it's both theatrical and heartfelt. And then, and like Wizard of Oz, that's like the rarest thing to pull off, you know, like, uh, and that's why they both last. So it's always good to talk to you.
Well, thank you very much. And I'm glad we got to do the, the FaceTime. Let's say from now on, if we can, we'll do it this way every time. That sounds good. That sounds right. good to me. All right, then. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That's the first part of our interview with Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips, and we're going to continue now. We've caught up with him again, and we're just going to get right into that now. How are you? All right, I'm 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 great. I was just sitting at this this freshly tuned piano, and um, yeah, and then Michael's in the other room doing some mixing, and um, yeah. You know, after talking to you, I. I I, I went back and I, I listened to the music again and, and uh, um, you know, listening to uh, Mother, Please Forgive Me again with, uh, after speaking to you and hearing about what that event felt like for you, you know, what it, uh, it struck me that this is sort of like an alt autobiographical song. Like it's not biographical, it's alternate. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's 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 not, not like your story, but I mean, this story for me, you know, it's it's been kind of mythologized even for me. Yeah. You know, I think anything that you do, you know, like, even like the thing you spoke about, you don't really know that it's going to be this thing that happens to you that changes your life. You know, I remember when it was happening, thinking, well, this must happen to everybody. And, um, you know, I didn't think that much about, like, how is this important? Is this weird? I mean, it certainly was important and weird to me. But, you know, it was, it was, you know, I didn't know, like, it's, oh, well, it's just happening to me, you know. So, you know, now that it's a long ways away, you know, I think I've considered that it changed my life. But I didn't consider it till I was older, really, you know, and, and thought, well, this doesn't really happen to everybody. And what did I think? in the aftermath and, and all that. But, you know, the thing that you said where, you know, it there would never be another room that you could go into that was going to... And you already had done the worst one. You'd already, you know, you'd already did it. And and I, I remember feeling that way too. But you don't really know when it's all happening. You know, I, I realize it now. And I realize, you know, once you, once you go through something like that, it really does... I mean, it, you really never forget it. But... You know, you just become you again, though, and it doesn't feel like, oh, I've, you know, I'll have this scar forever. I do. I never look at it like that. I look at it like a great, you know, just just another version of, of being alive. So it is, in a sense, autobiographical, but it's, you know, it's this cons consolidated, you know, version, mytholo mythologized version of it that I've, because I get interviewed, you know, a lot and I talk a lot, you know, I've. <laughs> For you a lot so it kind of you know I, I think that helps it become a song too because uh you know I've, I've i've chose things to remember i've chose things to say you know that doesn't that doesn't tell the story or whatever and, and and in that way you know when we were putting the the titles of the songs all together and all that you know this is just steven and i because we love classic rock and all that sort of shit you know we look at the song list and it would be like there would be a brother there'd be a mother there'd be a, another mother in there you know and we'd start like oh i think i know what this this album is about just from titles and and i think a lot of times with with flaming lips music that's not you don't you don't know anything from the, <laughs> from the titles i mean i think you you did like with yoshimi bells the pink robots because you know we say yoshimi is the name of the song we talk about robots and stuff you know but most of our albums, you might think you know, and then as soon as you read the titles, you're like, fuck, I have no idea. So, you know, it was just another way of, of putting 
this is what this album is about. You know it even from looking at it, even from looking at the titles, like chapters of a book or something. So yeah. It is. It's. I mean, and and yeah. But but I think everybody knew the story enough. I mean, Flaming Lips fans know the story enough to kind of be like, oh, there's there's Wayne singing about that thing. He's never really sung about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, though, the tone of it and the uh, the tonality of it, uh, it's you know, it, like, do you realize it? It's it's a very effective uh, emotionally song about death or about the perception of death or the the, the meaning of death. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not a lot of bands go there, you know. I was thinking like. You know, other than like, you know, the amazing stuff that Johnny Cash was doing at the end of his life with like Hurt and, and some other and the American recordings and, and Springsteen with the Rock. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. 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 Or Zevon when he was dying of cancer, you know, that album. That yeah. Yeah. Many that people like tread on that territory. Well, and I think we would have been one of the bands that wouldn't have wanted to either. You know, I mean, once we did you know stuff like off the soft bulletin where you just simply are you're just radically going like i'm just going to do this and this is what you know i love music that does this and you just expose your internal you know grief and soul or whatever i would i would imagine a lot of bands wouldn't really want to because it's i don't know you know it can easily go bad you know it can easily look pretentious it can easily look self-important it can easily look like you're being ironic you know it can go a lot of ways and it's 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 only now that i think steven and i you know we we all approach the music sort of like well you know it's this type of story it's this type of song and i think i i had that that very beginning for a long time you know please don't be sad you know and it's there's there's stuff that, that the melody and the tone and everything tells you that i feel like oh that we're in a good spot there to tell the rest of the story but yeah, I mean, I, I I totally get that. It's you know, it's very easy to to do, well, not easy, but I mean, it's 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 a lot funner to do fun music where you know nothing's at stake and you know no one's really. I, I mean, you know, Stephen and I make the joke that the worst the worst thing that can happen to you is you know he or I are working on a song and it's like you know you're you're singing about your your you're dying and you hope your mother is going to be all right and then your 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 collaborator says yeah i don't really like it and you're like oh okay i just it's my whole life is in that song and you just you don't like it you know so it's just rare that we would want to you know burden each other or the world with like well if i don't like this this is like this guy's fucking life story what 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 do we do after that you know so it's it's some of that too you know it's, it strikes me like I just it makes me think of like a Woody Allen joke. Someone's editing somebody's suicide note. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, and, no, and part. I don't know about this part. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and you don't want to. I mean, you know, we're we're trying to we want to be honest with each other and all that. But I think that's part of the the agreement we make is like you know, no, no matter what we do, you know, you can reject it, and it can just be rejected for being, uh, you know, either entertaining or not, not rejecting it because you don't, you know, you don't like me or, you, you know, you know, so, but that's a long ways down the road, you know, so I think that it's probably a lot of that. You're looking for an excuse to do this song, but you know, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of dilemmas, you yeah. know. There was that great era of the 70s where there was all these like really maudlin songs, like, uh, uh, I'm thinking, uh, but they 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 still resonate with me. Like there the there's something about the melodies or the melodies. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, like I mean, we we uh, think of like uh, seasons in the sun. Cats in the cradle. 
I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, there's it's some of the Cat Stevens stuff. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty, I, I mean, I think if you're in the right state of mind, it probably sounds romantic, but a lot of them are sound, yeah, it's, it's about dying and death. It's wonderful. I mean, I, you know, in a way, I mean, Dark Side of the Moon is like that. You know, it, there's there's a there's a foreboding epicness, uh, you know, biblical proportions, and it's it's beautiful. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to resist. Do you like uh, that movie Pink Floyd: The Wall? I always uh, I love that film. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, I I like it, but I now I can't really watch Bob Geldof be that guy. You know, I guess, yeah. I guess that's where I'm. You know, what a weird choice but but you know as his life has gone on he doesn't seem quite like that's the guy but i like the movie but i don't listen to the album that much i mean i like i definitely like some of the songs on the album but i don't, I don't listen to it as a big yeah. uh you know some of the war songs that R roger waters screams and stuff that some of them i'm not like well it's just, it's just not my my thing yeah yeah sure yeah that's um you know, we'll never see. I always thought there'd be a remake of that movie, uh, but now with the stuff <laughs> that Roger's been saying about, uh, uh, you know, sort of denying the Holocaust and stuff, I, I, that's probably so radioactive. Nobody, nobody would ever go near it. Well, I mean, I think that's probably a little bit of the dilemma. You know, he he sometimes I think is just has to say this story, and you're just really. I mean, I I, I think those things are fine. But, you know, what I like about the best of their music is that it, he's he's singing. A, life it's not necessarily so specific into his or his father's life like he you know some of his stuff can be so yeah i i can hope he doesn't you know but that's just me you know <laughs> yeah that, that, that um you know and one of the things that uh i know that you have a connection to sort of the comic book world you know i know that you guys now you were in three issues of the x-men was that something that yeah. Right. Well, well, our manager Scott Booker is a is a huge, huge fan, and and Michael, the bass player, you know, I mean, as as time's gone on, they've been less and less, but in the heyday, in their heyday, you know, it was there. They love Star Trek as well, and when Star Trek was still uh, a series, or still it was still on TV, or, or they were actually in one of the episodes. You know? Oh wow! So when our manager would meet someone. Uh, that you know has potential to put us in in one of his favorite comic books. <laughs> he 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 persuades them to do it, yeah. And so I mean, I I forget that it's happening because it's it's sometimes it's things that are going to take you know two or three years, and you know, and it's 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 you know you you kind of forget about it, and then suddenly someone shows you the comic book, you're like, oh, this is this is pretty great. But I'm not a fan like that of just some. Of the, old old school classic stuff like spider-man and superman and stuff like that from my older brothers having you know the thor and the hulk and stuff like that but not too much of the new 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 stuff sure sure and then heavy metal you know this is a podcast for heavy metal magazine and uh oh i, you know, I didn't know if it was the magazine or what you know yeah. it's like i mean i you know it's funny living in oklahoma um, and, and walking to work at this very long John Silver's that we were talking about where I where the robbery happened, I would yeah. walk past a record store and a bookstore, and I would leave sometimes you know early enough to hang out in both of those. And I, I think I still have the first issue of the American version of Heavy Metal. I mean, I still have the original one that I bought. Yeah. You know, I, I bought them quite regularly, and there is... A couple of them now. I mean, I, I forget how classic they are. There's there's the one with uh, with Mobius and and Corbin, Richard, yeah. Richard Corbin. I mean, there's one that's got a 
you can't believe it now. You know, it's like a greatest hits that somebody put together, and it was just it was just one of the issues. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, the new issue, uh, we'll we'll send you a copy. Uh, The 300th issue just came out. um, Oh, wow. Yeah. It it is my interview with Mobius uh, that I did back in 2010. No way. Yeah. Wow. That's never published before about like sort of his influences in his childhood. He told me an amazing story about how the first time he was really swept away by a cinematic experience, the first time he went to a movie, it was to see uh, Munchausen, the 1940 version that was made uh, it's like 1941 uh, was made under Nazi Germany auspices. I mean, it was made by like the yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And he saw it in Paris while occupied. It was occupied Paris. Like he was in the theater, and he said when he walked in, it felt like he was underwater because there were so many Nazi uniforms, all the all the blue uniforms. It looked like he was underwater. <laughs> what that, a weird thing to say. Is that yeah. I mean, I, you know, I mean, he's one of my heroes, you know, for the longest time. I mean, you know, back before the Internet, he would be one of those mysterious characters that you would just anything that you could see or read about. You would, you know, and and his involvement in um, with Ridley Scott making is it is it is it Alien and Blade, Blade Runner? That's right. That's right. And and, you know, this is what this is what you happen to you know you're you're in love with love with something that is like absolutely underground you know there wouldn't be any anybody i could talk to in my life that would understand like do you know you know this mobius artist guy and, and no one knew you know and then it's so underground that you sort of just make it your own thing and then suddenly you know big movies are made and you're like i told you motherfuckers he was cool you know uh, something he had said long long time ago you know i've always looked for things that he's saying about um his art and stuff, but he said, you know, whenever you are painting a woman, you know, you have to be very careful. One wrong line, and you can make her look old and ugly. And I always remembered that because, you know, his his uh, simple drawings, you know, they're just so simple and beautiful. You know, they're they're rarely are they simple and ugly. And I, and that's a man. That's it's easy just to get proportions and scribble and all that. It's easy to do that, but to always be aware that hey, this. This can go a lot of, this can go one way or the other, you know. But what was he like when you talked to him? He speaks, he speaks English, huh? Yeah, he spoke English. Uh, he died uh, two years after this. Uh, so when I saw him in 2010, his eyes were really uh, failing him. Um, but his spirit uh, really uh, loved him. And he, he was very candid. He, he told me about the, I said, you know, what's the biggest challenge in your life right now? And he said, the biggest challenge is I can do what makes money which is these private commissions for people because I've reached this level where I don't, I can just do these paintings for collectors who won't even look at them and they'll just wait till I die and sell them. Or uh, I can try to meander and find a new graphic novel, a new story to tell and maybe come up with something that connects with everybody, but maybe waste my time and also not have enough money to take care of myself in this moment. And you know, like this, this, this tug between the art and the commerce uh, that, you know, every, every art, artist uh, has some familiarity with but he was so honest about it and so uh, candid about it. I, I found him, he was a lot like his artwork. He was extremely elegant, you know, uh, but very, very uh, unpretentious. Like he just had this sort of, this inner calm about him. And you know, he reminded me, Wayne, he reminded me a lot. And I don't know really why, but he reminded me a lot of Leonard Cohen, who I'd interviewed also. That they oh, had, wow. Yeah. They, 
there's something that they both had that they seemed completely self-sufficient. They, they were like eggs. They didn't need anything from anything around them. You know, they were perfectly contained and like, they're, they're, they're fine. Just leave me alone, you know, like, uh, but not, not uh, aloof or anything, just a lack, right. of, yeah. lack of neediness. Well, you know, I, I, I've thought about his life in the way, you know, his art is, is very much him, you know, and it's, you know, and I'm I, some art that I do, you know, I'm, I'm doing by myself and I'm, I'm glad I'm kind of making decisions and changing or whatever, you know, but when I was younger, you know, I did think, man, this is just too boring for me. I've got to do, I've got to have more going on, you know? And so I didn't, I didn't know what a leap it was to go from making, you know, paintings to playing music and writing music. I didn't really think about it, but I didn't want to just sit there all the time by myself, you know? And for me, I mean, being mostly a visual artist, I just don't see how anybody that isn't doing music wouldn't want music. I mean, no matter what, you know, it's like, and I don't, I don't know why, but music seems to be, it just connects so much of your emotions and, and everything together. Not like a way of painting, not like a drawing, not even like a story. It's just something about that, that the way you have to listen and shut everything else off that sort of goes right into your, you know, internal you but, you know, I, I always think like someone like Mobius, I mean, I, you know, like Brian Eno, you know, he, he does just a lot of stuff. You know, it's visual, it's it's lights, it's, it's, you know, he does lectures, he does music, he does production, you know. And that's where I was at with it as well. You know, I love the idea you could just sit there in the corner and create something. But I didn't want to just sit there all the time. You know, I always wondered about him. Did he, did he ever think, I want to make music, I want to do something else? Well, he was, you know, he was uh, captured by the idea of animation. Like he, uh, uh, Walt Disney was a had a yeah. like power over him. Um, and uh, I think you know what happened too is that you know in the seventies, the reason that heavy metal issue that you saw early, the reason that felt like a greatest hits album is that uh, it started the magazine started in France first. So you were seeing kind of the counterpart version that had the benefit of cherry picking. So it was a greatest hits in a way. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I wow! So no coincidence that it like it was blammo because they'd already they already knew. Well, th these are working. Wow! Well, and it was thing in France, and you know, Mobius uh, uh, was one of the the co-founders. There was a group of four or five, I think, and they were partners and, and a lot like a band, and they they treated it like a band, and they and they, you know, this is Paris in the sixties or seventies, I should say, and they uh, well, it started like sixty eight, sixty nine that they really started getting underway with it. And I think it was so satisfying for him that he was part of this scene and that the magazine was yeah. doing well in France and stuff. So I think that that took it away from just the art table. Like, uh, it wasn't just uh, yeah. the art kind of like Yeah, it's, a, it's like a movement. It's a collective. Everybody's sort of in each other. I mean, I, I totally get that. And, and really, how lucky am I to get that be the issue? You know, I mean, I, I was familiar with other underground comics, you know, yeah. But by then, Robert Crumb and stuff, sometimes they just do too many words, you know? And that's what I loved about Mobius and, and like, Richard Corbin. It's like, it didn't really need words, you know? You could just look at it and know what's going on, you know? And yeah. so that part of it, you know, just, just blew me away. And, and really to have all those stories in one magazine together, you know, if they would have been separate in other, other times, it, it may not have hit me as, like, such a such a blammo. But, yeah, it was it was awesome. And then to know you're getting turned on to new things and new artists and 
but you know, like back then you couldn't find out anything, you know, it's like, there's there, like people don't realize today how, you know, just one word of a song and you can start to figure out what it, what it is, when it came out, who made it. It's like, gosh, you know, we live in, it's just amazing times. Yeah. There's so little mystery left. You know, there used to be so much mystery. Like he was like a Salinger figure or like, you know, it's like you were, you, he would be. He would strike you like you. It was just a name, and you would see this name Mobius, and the signature was oh, so. And he was yeah. Trying, is this what planet is this guy on? Who is this guy? Is he? Is he Ken Kesey? Is he Willy Wonka? Who is this guy? Right. I mean, that is exactly it. I mean, for me, the mysteries are always. You know, I make them too good. You know, I'm glad to know rea what reality is. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I, I see, some artist work and it's bad and it's boring. You're like, oh, good because. You know, you get used to, I don't know, even like stuff like the Beatles, you know, before they did so many solo things, you know, it would just be hard to believe that they're just actual humans because it's just right. so, you know, you feel like you're sitting there playing a piano. It doesn't sound like when they do it, you know, and it's and it's it's such a great relief to find out that they did of a song and it took them, you know, forever to get them that and when you know what mixing is and all that sort of stuff. So for me, I'm always, they always start off as, 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 you know, Santa Claus and Jesus Christ, but I just, I want them to be real because, uh, you know, otherwise you just, you, you know, like when, when David Bowie died, yeah, you know, I think people like this, this, this compliment they, that they thought they were giving him. It's like, you know, he, he was from outer space. He wasn't one of us, you know? And I'm like, no, that, that undersells him. He's, he's, he's just like us. And he, and he did this. That's what. That's what makes him better, you know. It's like that he's he is one of us, and he's conflicted, and he's fucked up, and he's addicted to drugs, and he's trying, and he's trying different things. That's what makes it great that he is one of us, not that he's some freak that you know we'd we'd never know on the street. He, he you know, so I kind of like it that little by little. I think even for the Flaming Lips, I think for our music and our life, I think the more you know about us, the funner it is, you know. Oh, that's you know, I, I feel like we're that good at, you know, creating a myth, you know. And so, you know, there is sometimes we make music and stuff. And I say, well, people will understand that after I'm dead. Like, you know, I'm not really going to worry. I don't really know what it means right now. Or, you know, if you put all these things together, what kind of artist I would be. I mean, you know, to me, it just sort of seems like you're just you making your stupid stuff, you know. Yeah. But you always over worry about how do people perceive you, you know, and. And, and so I try to make it sort of seem like it, you would be like my friend. You'd know what all I do. And that would, and then that would make you like our music more instead of like, you know, for fear you'd find out something and then be like, well, I don't, I, I don't know. I always, you know, it's like, it's like the, the Michael Jackson story. You know, when you, when you think of all the, the allegations of being a pedophile and all that, it makes you not want to listen to his music, you know, it, and and you know music should be separate from that, but it, it's not. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, well, it's tough because it's tough for people because you know, I, I, as you know, I've interviewed a lot of musicians through the years. I mean, and, and there is something different about. Um, um, well, people ask me, do you do you prefer interviewing actors or do you prefer interviewing musicians? I say it's that's easy. It's always musicians because the best musicians are themselves and the best actors aren't. I still want to hear more about your Mobius interview. I mean, I really can't believe that. So when you, when you <laughs> him, did he seem like he was going to die? No, not at all. And, and his, he, he was in pretty good spirits. I mean, his eyesight was really tough uh, for him. And, and 
but he, his mobility, he was smiling when I met him. He was very funny. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Little jokes. He, he would get frustrated with himself because he couldn't think of a word in English, and he would ask his wife. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he, he was really, really lovely. Um, and he asked a lot of questions about what I was interested in, and, and he was simply like, uh, he pursued he my point of view on things. And he told me a lot about, like, the landscapes, that uh, his art. Like, I was fascinated by the landscapes. I said, you know, tell me, tell me where you found these in your own life, because you're not drawing things you've seen in comics. You're drawing things you've seen. There's a difference. Like, best film I've lived and then make films about it. The, they're not film school people where they've just seen films and are making films about that. Not that awful. People are like just certain. Yeah. But he, uh, you know, he talks about being in Mexico as a kid. He was there for his teenage years. You know, he ended up in Mexico because of the relationship that his mother was in. And so that's where he discovered this almost like the Sergio Leone kind of Western. It, it, exactly. Yeah. It, it yeah. really is. So uh, you know, think about that, that, that period of being. I, you know, I, to, for me, it's like somewhere between like being nine, 10, 11 and 12, something in there, you know, it hits you on the last, the last phase of your whatever, you know, before you're going to grow up, whatever it is that's going to happen to you hits you with such a, such impact that you, you become that. I mean, there's things that happened to me when I was 12 that I am actually today, you know, that just never you know, it never left me or I didn't think that they were affecting me. And they, and they were, you know, I look at all the things, you know, when I, I listening to the Beatles and listening to Tom Jones and seeing a guy play the Creedence Clearwater revival song, the, um, um, rolling on the river. You know, I, I, I played that in a bar. I'd never been in a, a bar. And I, for some reason I was in a bar being, 12 years old saw a dude really sing and play that you know it wasn't it, it wasn't john fulgerty it was just a dude you know but I'd, I'd never quite stood next to someone that was like singing a song i just heard on the radio like man you know and 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 that's me now you know i mean i just that stuff never left me and and i you know i didn't try to figure out how to do music i i think i tried to figure out how do you, how can you be that guy yeah you, you know, yeah, he's playing music, but it, 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 you know, it just seemed like it's more than that. You know, I, I don't know. So, yeah, and and that would be—that's a funny thing that that's the time where he's got this stuff that he can never free himself from, or if he wants to free himself from it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that whole idea that like uh, the first like 14, 15 years of your life is shaping who you are, and then after that, it's like are all the things that happen to that person. You know, like the there's that the protean period where all the input is actually shaping and deciding the, the contours of your personality and your ethics and your principles and, and your your pursuits. And then after that is, you know, game on, is, is all the things that happen to that, that person that you just made. Wow. Like you're, like you're programming a little computer. This, ha this, you know, so when you go out into the world, you'll know how to react because you've got these little, these yeah. th three or four, you know, thousand triggers that let you know oh you know i i always kind of say when you know when you stop your feelings get overtaken by experiences you know so i it, to me that there, there's somewhere in there where your 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 brain is battling to be like well do you feel this or do you know this and if you keep trying to know things you won't need to know how to feel because you'll know what it is instead of being like i feel like it's raining outside it's like 
No, it, you know that it's raining outside. All right. I feel bad about that. It's like, well, it, it, do you feel bad about it? Bad about it, or do you? Are you guilty, or do you? You know, or do you understand that it's? You know, it's like I think when you're younger, everything has a feeling. It's like, well, I remember, you know, walking trees and then seeing a dead dog and then watching a baseball game, and it, I've got a feeling, you know, that. And but as you get older, you know, it is just a tree and a dead dog and a baseball game, and they're not playing on you. Like, what is? What does this mean? You know, they become things, and and the. The overall, you know, spray of it isn't isn't. You're not wondering anymore what that is. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I wonder about it all the time, especially like the period where, you know, as dudes get older, um, you know, where what is the midlife crisis and what is the what is all that that happens to dudes, which you think when you're younger are 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 not true, but I see in my own life. And all of my all the dudes that I know that are getting older, it's true. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely 100 percent true. Yeah, and, and when you see these patterns, you wonder what we can learn from them, and and, and why we can't see the sort of the, the cures behind them. You know. Uh, or or yeah, or what is it? Yeah, because it doesn't seem to be, you know, based on their individual experience. It seems like it's a, it's something else. I, it, for me, it sort of feels like you think you're in control. Mm. You know, uh, you don't really know what the controls are till you get to be in your mid forties. Then you suddenly realize I'm not in control. What, <laughs> what the fuck is this? You know, I'm I'm I think this way, but I but I'm going that way, and you know, I I don't know. I, I always look for like an. That's interesting. Well, I wanted to ask you a question. Um... Okay. I saw you perform for the first time on April 2nd, 1988. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was at the Orange and Brew, which is a bar in Canesville, Florida, at the University of Florida. Um, you guys were playing quite a while ago, April, uh, April 2nd, 1988. Yep. And I have the set list here. And I was wondering, oh, what songs do you think he sang that night? Can you guess, like, three? What do you think you were playing? This is just a random joke. Like. Um. Thing. I I'm trying to remember this. We may have been playing. Um, we probably played some of our Here It Is album. Yeah. With you? Is it with you on the list? No. Uh, but okay, this could have been a period where we just got. We were Jonathan was was starting to be in the group, and we played probably five or six songs. Maybe we were playing like a David Bowie covers. Zeppelin. Yeah, but we did like five years. You did Zeppelin. You did um, Zeppelin. Yeah. Used and uh, communication breakdown. Oh. <laughs> okay. No. Yeah, I was thinking. All right. Well, I was thinking we were already on to like David Bowie and Queen and stuff. So, no. um, I yeah. I mean, I don't. If you would have asked me, like, <laughs> you know, I thought because uh, I remember doing that in like 1986 and 87, and we were we would be covering Tommy by the Who and stuff. You know. Yeah. Song so wrong and so so amateur i'm anybody in the audience would have known that that's what the songs were which was part of the beauty of it you know we could really be doing this and this this great great song but it would still sound like we just made it up it's, <laughs> it's called jazz <laughs> you know like 
and and even and the audience probably didn't know those songs anyway. I mean, I mean, maybe you did, but a lot of you know, a lot of the audience we were playing to by then didn't they didn't even know what you know? They didn't listen to Led Zeppelin and stuff. So, you know, what a bizarre choice. But but I kind of remember. I mean, Florida has always been. Um, you know, it's too far to go to, you know, no one really wants to go 700 miles down there just for one show, you know, but, but we would all the time. I mean, we, we there was one night we played in New York city, um, you know, left there about 11 o'clock and drove all the way to, I think it may have been, um, um, it wasn't Gainesville. It may have been further like, uh, you know, Miami or something. And for a show, I remember, you know, taking a, exactly the amount of time that it took to drive from new york to florida to get to that gig and play you know it was but yeah well what else do we have to do sure (laughs) if i remember right you guys were trying to do you were doing zeppelin songs with pink floyd melodies or something like (laughs) zeppelin lyrics with pink floyd music and i was i think i remember this i i'm thinking i remember this now what's the what was the venue like it was a it was a cellar uh bar it was at the bottom of a uh, the student union, but it, it it was like kind of a dingy, sticky floors. Uh, uh, and it was called the Orange and Brew because the campus colors are orange and blue. Uh, it, I was a sophomore in college, and it was the first time I ever did psychedelic drugs. Was that night? Oh my gosh! Like LSD. Yes. And and this was good or bad or? Well, it's still happening. I'm still waiting for it to wear off. <laughs> uh, but so far, you know, it's been 35 years of really vivid vivid uh, vividness but i've been waiting to tell you this the whole time so if you were confu- uh, curious uh, the other you closed with one million billionth of a millisecond on a sunday morning yeah 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 um yeah well i mean what a ridiculous classic <laughs> you know fucked up long piece of music you know and and i don't know what we were really I, the, the, part of us was was trying to break free of just being uh, uh, such an amateur punk rock group, you know. I mean, we we would play simple songs, but we didn't know enough about music to keep them, you know, musically interesting. So sometimes we would just make them long and heavy and loud, and think, well, we've got we've got that, you know. <laughs> At that time when we, you know, that if, if I think if the group would have stayed that way, I, we probably wouldn't have wanted to stay together too much longer. You know, luckily I think some other some other things came along that you know helped us to change into something because yeah that that would have that was, I remember that being a slightly frustrating on a musical level you know but not uh, you know it was a great great ridiculous adventure you know back then for sure just you didn't know what was going to happen to you or your life or any of that you know just really living in that in that moment you know but I mean that is the dilemma of being you know you're I'm not really a performer you know I I'm more of just like a painter and an artist dork, you know, whatever. So you're always thinking about, well, what is this going to be? You know, where's this going to go? And, you know, part of you is doesn't care about that. And part of you does. It's a, it's a conflicted mess to be performing all the time and not being a performer and writing music all the time, but not knowing anything about music. And, you know, it's like, fuck, you know, but I think it, I think it did help attract you know, some real stellar musicians and some real stellar producer guys, because I think they could say, I could help you. You know, it's like you've got something that you can't quite figure out. I can help you. And and I think that's a great, great thing about music. You know, it's so it so exposes you because you don't know what you're doing. You know, 
just you're just you're just a blind person painting you know and you know i didn't know anything about what i was doing but i think other musicians would hear it and sort of be like you don't know what you're doing but some of it's cool you know and i'll be like, oh good I, you know, that's good news you know because i had no idea you know and and you know they'd point out the bits that didn't work, and I'd be like, I know, I, 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 it, I it doesn't work, but how could we make it work better? And yeah, so I, I think that, that you know that was a time when we were, you know, we were, we were, you know, trying to find another thing, and 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 um, and we did, and, you know, luckily it found us or something, but yeah. It's interesting what you're saying that it makes it, that's true about musicians, like they're it's it's a. Uh... They, they don't make their mistakes in, in private or in quiet. These are amplified blunders. So, like, people are going to hear them, you know, but they, they also hear the beautiful, uh, you know, mistakes underneath, you know, the things that, uh, all the possibilities, the potential of it. Yeah, and, I mean, and we, you know, we always love playing. I mean, I, there's no there's no doubt that we would be a gleeful thing to be standing in front of anyway, you know. It, it never were sour. We're never mad. We're never boring you know and it would excite us and we i think that that part of it would, would creep into the crowd but i could see musicians in the crowd being very much like what are you guys <laughs> yeah you know great. that's great well that was 32 what 32 years ago and uh wow <laughs> there's not too many bands that's uh that captivate me or hold my attention for that long and you guys are right there man so that's uh it's a uh, i mean that as a very intense compliment uh i, I love yeah. Well, no, I and I take it as one. I mean, I to, I totally agree. I mean, you know, I don't know what happens to dudes as they get older. Um, a lot of a lot of dudes stop listening and stop stop you know trying anything new. But a lot of bands burn out and 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 think they're they're doing something when they're not. And I'm, I know I feel very lucky to just be like, um, hey man, you know, it's we're still we're still wanting to do shit. We still. I, never really think about it you know i'm in the studio right now right here today you know just, so well thank you very much i think this was your was this the interview were we doing yeah yeah okay yeah. <laughs> we're gonna have to do a little frankenstein kind of cut paste because we missed the beginning last time uh so we'll just kind of do you need to fix that up well i think we're okay if um i think we we have so much and uh uh boy we're just interesting stuff wayne it's it's just a trip yeah. to talk well, you should let's try to talk to each other as often. I mean, I mean, I get derailed easily when you when you do something, and it just leads me like I gotta I gotta find out more about that, you know. So, you know, you if we if we can make more time that way, I can hear your stories while while you're trying to find. But um, man, well, I well, it, but that doesn't surprise me that we would that we would be so much alike. The, the more you talk about stuff, I'm like. That's hey man, I I know what the fuck you're talking about. That that's cool. Yeah, right there with you, man. Right there with you. So many so many interesting things, but we'll definitely stay in touch. And I'll send you that stuff on Mobius. Uh, I think you'll be interested to read it. Well, it's great to see you again. All right, take care, Wayne. Thank you. Okay, bye. bye. Well, Jeff, it was really cool to hear you and Wayne talk. You know, I also really love what you mentioned about them practicing social distancing before it was cool. I thought that was pretty funny. Oh yeah, yeah. So back at Coachella. He came out in the giant plastic ball, as he described, and uh, interviewing him through the bubble backstage, you know, and uh, people can see you because he's in a giant bubble, you know, like it's hard to keep that a secret. Yeah. 
it's one of the stranger uh, experiences I've ever had, you know, just talking to somebody that was inside of a thing like that. I ended up also doing an interview on stage that I think was the same Coachella with Groove Armada while they were playing, which mm -hmm. shows me that DJs are making too much money. Because if you can do an interview during your show, you're not, you're not working hard enough. I don't think that's, that's just my theory. People always talk about how DJs, like once they start their track, they almost kind of just have to like stand there and like pretend like they're mixing. Right. It's true. I come from the tradition, rock and roll tradition. You know, I'm used to Mick Jagger. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and he's, and he's like Captain Kirk jumping around and stuff. And then you go to see a DJ and that's like Chekhov and Sulu. They just sit there, you know, and then they, they do dials. You know, so I, and I need Kirk. I need somebody bouncing around. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you won't see me doing that at a concert. I'm the awkward guy at the front that kind of looks around, doesn't know what to do. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> but yeah, I, it was also really great to hear you guys talk on such a personal level. Uh, yeah. He, isn't he a great guy? I mean, it's just, that's the thing that comes across. I, I knew you would like him. He's got such a great heart. You, you can just tell he's always really very authentic. Mm -hmm. he's not like kind of shining people on he's not just saying stuff to be nice you know he he really means what he says which is pretty great yeah the whole time he was there he was there and he was focused on y'all's conversation which i thought was great yeah so we're definitely gonna have to have him back on the show and it'd be great to get steven as well um, oh definitely that album you know american head again september 11th uh, and go check out the flaming lips website flaminglips.com i believe it's pretty nicely put together and their new videos are great and has social distancing in it without the hamster ball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so definitely go check out Flaming Lips this week, which will then tie us into some other recommendations and thoughts on things that are coming out right now. Yeah. So I wanted to bring up The Dark Knight Returns because last week you asked me and the rest of the listeners to go check it out, and I did. And I kind of wanted to get your take on some things. Sure. So I was reading about the history of this book and how after they had made the first Batman movie, they wanted to make another one. And they wanted to do the Dark Knight Returns. And I read that, which I thought was pretty interesting, that they were considering getting Clint Eastwood to play Batman and get David Bowie to play the Joker, which I thought would be a very interesting on-screen combination. It would have been uh, crazy in, in several ways. You know, Clint, I talked to him about this and he, he never, ever, ever considered it. Oh, really? He said he didn't even kind of recall it. But he told me a great story about them wanting him to be Superman. You know, when um, the Salkins started making the movie that would become Superman with Christopher Reeve, 1978, there was a search. At first, they were going to get a, a, a famous actor, and they wanted Robert Redford, who's blonde. It doesn't make any sense at all. You know, if you think of, like, Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid, he doesn't look anything yeah. like Superman, and was already in his, you know, 40s by then. And they offered it to Clint Eastwood, and, and I, I talked to Clint about that, and he just laughed. And he's like, you know, it's just... He's like, there's no way I'm going to put on tights. You know, this is not my thing, you know, like, and it's like, I just don't do that, you know, and it's, it's pretty funny the way he said it. I also asked him if he ever kind of liked comic books or read comic books, and he did. And favorite comic book character he shares in common with, it's Johnny Depp's favorite comic book character as well. And it's not, it's kind of a surprising one. It's uh, Namor, the Submariner, both of them. Interesting. So yeah. they like him more than they like anybody. Aquaman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't even think they want you to come with that Aquaman crap. Yeah. No, they, I think they, because, you know, Aquaman in the 40s wasn't nearly as cool as Namor. You know, Namor was like his first issue. He shows up in 1939, Marvel Comics number one, and he, he's like the first Marvel superhero, really. You know, this is before Captain America, way before any of the, you know, Fantastic Four, Silver Age stuff. And he arrives and he's like, he's angry because humans are pollution and all the stuff that we do that messes up the oceans and stuff like that. 
And he just starts throwing people out of the Statue of Liberty. He just murders people. Jeez. Yeah. The beginning of the story, there's a diver and he, he takes them to Atlantis to show everybody, but he didn't realize that they were hooked to a oxygen hose. So like the, he, he, they killed this person. Oh um, yeah, anyway. It was pretty dark for, for early Marvel comics. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's the thing is like those early comics, they, they were strange. It was before superheroes became kind of locked down and, and clean and squeaky. You know, like the first issue of Superman, he's beating up a wife beater, kicks in his door and says, hey, you want to try some of your own size? And knocks him around. And then he goes and he kidnaps the governor to stop an execution that he thinks is wrong. He's kind of a, a reckless kind of populist hero in a way. So... But Namor is like, he, he, he's kind of like Dracula from underwater. He was the star of the comic strip, but he wasn't a hero so much as he was like a force of nature. That's a really interesting way to put it. Dracula underwater. That could be yeah. like its own movie nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it, would, uh, it would definitely be hard to suck blood underwater. But it yeah. attract sharks. Well, there you have it. There's, there's issue number one right there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, a little trivia about him is, is that uh, his name... Bill Everett, the guy that created him, took his, he wanted a name that sort of suggested nobility. Uh, and Namor is Roman spelled backwards. Oh, wow. It's that simple. Yeah. One last thing on that. We can move on. Who came sure. first, Aquaman or Namor? Namor. Namor came for, first. And, and um, Aquaman came like, uh, you know, I think it was about three years later. Do you think the guy who created Namor kind of felt a little dumb when he's like, oh, I could just named him Aquaman? You know, I think Namor is a pretty cool name. That's a pretty cool name. Uh, you know, and Aquaman didn't really, for years and years, people did not think that was cool. You know, I mean, that, that character was, you know, made fun of for decades until, you know, the Jason Momoa movie. And, but that, that Aquaman is very different than the blonde, orange, orange-shirted tab hunter lookalike that, you know, was swimming around in DC Comics in the 50s and 60s, so... Oh, interesting. That's a heck of a tangent from Dark Knight. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah. I want to I want to get back to that a little bit actually on Dark Knight Returns because you and I had discussed a little bit earlier off the recording about if they did it today, what right. uh, could be, you know, like an old man, Bruce Wayne, an older right. Joker, and that kind of thing. So Right. So for that story, which uh, you know, Dark Knight Returns, which is in 1986, Frank Miller, the great classic story, it finds Batman in re retirement comes out of retirement. Uh, there's a female Robin, a teenager. Gotham has gone to the wolves and to the mutants, and it's it's a it's a hell pit. And this sort of vengeful Batman, Bruce Wayne, comes out of the shadows to reclaim the city and has a showdown with Superman to the death. So that that's the story. So if you were doing that now, it'd be really fascinating. And I, and I think and I mentioned that you know, Frank Miller himself, he always thought uh, Sylvester Stallone would be great for that role, you know, sort of the retired aging Bruce Wayne. But, uh, I, and I think he said that because of Stallone's uh, lips, you know, uh, he has such a distinctive uh, way of talking and such a distinctive kind of jawline. So I can see that. That's why they picked Michael Keaton too, because of his bee stung lips, you know, like you, you, mm -hmm. he can emote without the top half of his face being required. So there's a lot of people that would cast for that. But you know what I was thinking, you know, it would be great. I think if you just think about someone that has that sense of power and danger, I would go one of two ways, either Stephen Lang, who's a great actor. Uh, people remember him from Avatar. He's mm -hmm. the, the main military nemesis of Jake Sully. Um, he plays a great bad guy. He's a great bad guy and powerful man. You know, he's, he's really ripped physically and has a lot of intensity and it has, 
great acting career. It goes back to the 80s, really cool roles he's done through the years. Uh, first movie he made was with Gene Hackman, really made an impression on him. So that's the that, that would be the kind of the guy I would want to see do it. But then if you were just going for filling the seats, then no disrespect to, to Stephen, how fascinating would it be uh, either good or bad to see Mel Gibson try to put in put himself in the Bruce Wayne role and because you know one part of the, the the character is having the belief that this guy could go unhinged any second yeah and uh, Mel's had that volatility in him for a long time you know um, I mean that's you go back to Lethal Weapon his first movie when he he's contemplated suicide in that movie and he's got a gun in his mouth mm-hmm. it's it's one of the most powerful scenes of the uh, that was put on film that year you know I know it was an action movie and people kind of dismiss it but that was really pretty amazing uh, scene for him and that's why he could play Bruce Wayne. Yeah and Dark Knight Returns definitely is more of like a grittier Batman that we see. He's less of a detective and more of like a just vengeful angry Batman. Get off my Batcave. Get off yeah. my lawn. Yeah he's yeah. very he's bitter he's fading he's got nothing left to lose uh, and not really thinking about you know, playing it safe, you know. But it's, a, it's an amazing uh, tour de force as a graphic novel. And it was originally published as a four-issue series. And, you know, the American comic book changed because of that series. Batman changed a lot. And they, no one had really ever done anything quite like it. I mean, they'd had imaginary stories. What if Superman died? Or, you know, the last Batman story kind of thing. But not like this where, you know, it was set in the future. It was that bleak. And taking a major character uh, with a lot of licensing, you know, aspects to their a portfolio and turning him into a, a killer you know so it's a good one i'm glad you're reading it and, and i trust that you're enjoying it oh yeah definitely it's a little long so it'll take me a little bit but i'm definitely enjoying it sure well take your time it's uh, that's one of the great things about the comic book medium is it's uh the running time is up to you yeah very true now uh moving on i just wanted to see if you had uh, seen tenet yet i haven't seen tenet yet but i shall <laughs> I saw it uh, at an early screening earlier this week, and uh, it's it's pretty loud. I'll let you know that now. <laughs> it's uh, you know you're not the only person I've heard say that. I've heard that from a couple people, and uh, you know as we, as we mentioned before, is you know I think Christopher Nolan his movies he he pushes the envelope for sound and for sight. He wants to do as much as he can. He has the full palette as a filmmaker. I mean, and so he makes the movies that sound and look the best in all of Hollywood. Sometimes I think uh, what hurts is that they don't show these movies at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater, which is the one I mentioned a few minutes ago about Chadwick Boseman. That's the best theater in America, I think, right? Most people don't see movies there. They see them at a you know suburban mall, postage stamp-sized theater with uh, understaffed and uh, a staff that may be disinterested in, in calibrating things the right way or incapable of it. And so I think a lot of times, like, you know, with like the Bane character, there was a lot of people so they could understand what Bane was saying. And I know it became like a real sensitive topic for, for Chris and Emma, his producing partner and wife. But uh, I think part of it is, you know, they, they, they make these things, they're, they're making like Lamborghini movies, you know, like these are like the mm-hmm. engineering marvels, you know, these are finely engineered devices, these, these giant movies. But then uh, people are putting really crappy oil in really crappy gas in them or they're riding them on a, a bumpy dirt road called, you know, the Cineplex. Yeah. And, and it's not going to help the long term with the health of the movie industry, which is already, you know, taking a beating in so many different ways. People have better sound at home than they do at the theaters. And you start asking yourself, why am I going to the theater? But 
I'm definitely going to go see it again. And I recommend that you go see it too. I would love to see it. You know, I, I really would. I'm looking forward to it. And the guy, is, he's the Alfred Hitchcock of, uh, of modern day science fiction and superhero movies. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, it's it kind of like Christopher Nolan's James Bond movie. That's kind of how it felt when I was watching it. Yeah, you know, he loves James Bond. And, and and James Bond was a heavy influence on Inception, you know, the international sort of adventure aspects of it. He really likes that. And uh, he loves the Bond films, you know. Before we go, I just have one last thing. Your comic book recommendation for the week for The Essential Shelf. I'm curious what you had for us this week. Oh, for The Essential sh- uh, Shelf this week, you know, when you get done with Dark Knight, the, one, the next one I think you should read if you haven't read it is the first few collections of Sandman by Neil Gaiman and amazing group of artists. You know, it's a landmark series that DC Comics did through their Vertigo imprints, and it presents Morpheus, the god of dreams, who is a uh, being without a kingdom. He's separated from his realm at the beginning of the story. He's been kidnapped and confined by a human for decades and uh, as we meet him he is about to get his freedom and try to reclaim his kingdom and it's just it's the beginning it's the key that turns a door that opens to i think the best sustained um comic book run of anything ever <laughs> it's and it's interesting it's a tough you know that's saying a lot because i mean i love swamp thing by alan moore and i love a lot of different comic book runs through you know but i i think sandman the way the completeness of it the fact that it was, you know, Neil all the way and he had such control over the character and did it his way and had such a great vision and the story is so supple and can go in so many different directions. You know, it's like the, he's like the Ingmar Bergman of comic books uh, with this series and there's nothing quite like it. Now, is it tied into other DC comics at all or is it kind of its own thing? It kind of is and then kind of isn't. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, just like Swamp Thing, you know, Sandman exists in the same... DC Universe as, as uh, the other characters, but this is, it weaves as a separate distinct mythology, although it, it veers into superhero stuff every once in a while, just the way Swamp Thing did as well. Uh, mm. But uh, you don't see Sandman teaming up with Wildcat a lot, you know, like Brave <laughs> and Bold stuff. You know, I mean, they, they keep them separate and distinct, but it's, the mythology is, uh, it's so comprehensive and just so uh, immersive that it's on par with stuff like Tolkien. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that one out. So far on the essential shelf, we have V for Vendetta, Dark Knight Returns, and now today we've added Sandman by Neil Gaiman. Yeah, and three great writers, uh, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Frank Miller, and David Lloyd collaborating on V for Vendetta. That's really good stuff right now. Oh, yeah. Actually, I lied to you. Sorry. There's a couple more things I want to say before we go. First of all, The Boys dropped today. Really excited to watch that. And that made me think again how maybe in 10 years, Carl Urban could play a great Batman in The Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I mean, Carl Urban would be great. And when he played uh, Judge Dredd, which if you remember the <clears throat> Sylvester Stallone played the character first mm-hmm. uh, with his mouth being distinctive in the comics, Judge Dredd never takes off his helmet though. And in the, com- uh, in the Sylvester Stallone movie, he does, but not in the Carl Urban movie. So, uh, you know, uh, cheers to Carl uh, Urban and, and his collaborators on the, the remake for staying true to the, the characters like core. But uh, I mean, Judge Dredd was kind of a combination between Logan's run and Dirty Harry and Batman, you know, uh, when it came mm-hmm. out in a way. Uh, so Judge Dredd definitely has a lot of anger-driven crime fighter who takes shortcuts and you don't want to get on their bad side. Yeah. Yeah, so there's some similarities there. Well, that's it for recommendations. Just one last thing I want to say before we leave is that heavy metal podcasts are number one in Croatia. Did you know that? 
I did not know that. I'm really, really very pleased by that. And I think that we should name all the listeners one by one uh, and thank them. Uh, hands across the international borders to my Croatian friends. Thank you very much. I'm wondering where Liechtenstein is. I'm really kind of thinking I should get some more respect, uh, respect and support from you know that corner. So I'm a little disappointed in them. Well, maybe they'll turn up next week for us. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Do you like my geography? That's as, that's that's as about as brave as I could get. As yeah, I didn't go that yeah, close. I was going to add Europe. one too, but I yeah, I'm not really sure. I could say yeah. Luxembourg, I guess, but that's Western Europe. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, you know, what can you do? But uh, but I hear we're big in Japan too. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, this was a great episode, Jeff, and I'll talk to you next week. Hey, thanks for everything, Evan. It's a lot of fun. Let's do it again. Yep.